Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. Hello there, this is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you up to date on all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Now, last week on the programme, we spoke with Professor Vincent Wade from the Adept Centre for Research into Digital Content about the digital personal assistant project called Adele. The interview touched on a number of different technologies and areas of research such as natural language processing, human-machine interaction and artificial intelligence. So Niall Kitson has done a deeper dive into these fields, this week interviewing some of Ireland's foremost researchers into those areas. It's fascinating stuff. Enjoy. I'm talking here now with Naomi Hart, who is an associate professor in uh, digital uh, media systems at the Adapt Centre in Trinity College. And Naomi's work is interesting in that we're looking right now at the inputs for a digital personal assistant. Well, how does uh, a system separate signal from noise? And uh, I suppose let's just jump into things, Naomi. I mean, mm-hmm. you've been looking at, you know, hearing and signal processing for quite a while now. So when you approach a project and say, let's take something very basic in signal processing. What are the factors that sort of interest you in terms of maybe separating out the elements of a signal? Well, ultimately, we want to get to human speech. And when we capture or record those sort of signals, they rarely tend to be as clean as we would like them to be. There's lots of problems in terms of capturing speech, problems like background noise, competing speakers um, and we have to home in on what part of the signal we actually want to extract information from first and that can be quite challenging so when we when we go you know okay siri or okay google or what have you um what sort of problems do you think are are inherent in there because we know that there are accuracy issues right there so do you do you think it's it might be coming down to the individual algorithms or are we looking maybe at something hardware related Well, a lot of these devices are in a mode of constantly listening, okay? So when you say, hello, Siri, they're waiting for you to say something or um, Amazon's um, Alexa Alexa device. So they're always listening and they're pretty good. They've got quite um, sophisticated microphone systems whereby they can cancel out a lot of noise. So the signal that they end up with, they can do a lot with. Um, So a lot of the hardware issues in terms of capture in a quiet room at home when you're the only person in the room it's very straightforward it's a little more difficult for Alexa if you're trying to listen to the radio at the same time and speak um, problems like that it's very difficult to use Siri if you're walking down the road and a bus is going by but if it's quiet they can they can do a really good job so those problems tend to disappear a little um, in quiet conditions and then the big challenge then becomes human speech We as humans have an amazing ability to deal with all the variations in speech, which machines just don't do so well. I think it's because it's such an implicit thing with people, you know, we're we're, we're used to hearing and disseminating channels in what we see every day. is it, is, it, is it really that hard to sort of separate that, that link from the, the visual to the arrow when it comes to signal processing? 
that you know we're so used to recognizing okay that's that's the sound of a bus we we don't need to pay attention to that yeah we we just have an amazing ability to filter out all the parts of a signal that we're not interested in and just figure out here's a person speaking that's that's what i want to process right now and our ability to teach machines to do that is hard we've tried to copy how the human brain does it and that hasn't worked we've tried to throw all of the information at neural nets that's a bit more promising rather depressingly um but um until we really crack how to analyze all these signals together the what we see what we hear to the level that a human can do it that's you know the stage at which you really find the technology taking off you touched there on the idea of accents, and I, I think you know when looking at localization, people sort of ask, okay, why don't we have Cortana over here? Why, why aren't these products rolling out much much faster than we'd like? Does it really come down to thing, you know the simple thing as you know the the thick regional accent? That's a huge issue. You know, if you buy speech recognition software, you know, for dictating to a computer, it will work very well for American English or British English but when you first pull it out of the box and there's a pull down menu where you say what your accent is Irish is not there so adapting to accents is something that when you're using a piece of software for days and weeks it will do but if you're spontaneously trying to interact with technology it gets very confused with different accents because we tend to pronounce words very differently. We tend to use quite different vowel sounds um, in Hiberno-English, as we call it. Um, our soft T is a classic way of confusing technology. Um, and then it's not just how we say it. We use different words. We use different sentence constructs. We have words that, say, somebody from England might not even understand. So how can we teach technology to understand it? That's a very interesting cognitive problem that you just raised there uh, in terms of sentence phrasing. Uh, and also, I guess, you know, the, the idea of communicating sarcasm. I mean, uh, how, how does, you know, Siri deal with that? Um, I, I think somebody needs to fund a project on Irish sarcasm detection because the, the cultural differences are huge. I, I've, I've seen research where... They've worked on sarcasm detection um, at international conferences and all the Irish people in the room are shaking their heads saying, that's not sarcasm. <laughs> that's way too obvious. The subtleties involved in cultural expressions are actually very interesting. So if we were to pull apart a sound wave of saying, you know, I love your jacket or I love your jacket. Um, well, what do those look like visually? You know, if you were to pull them into an audio editor, does it make any difference or you know does it come down to okay we need something more complicated here so we we can tell a lot about a signal from the intonation or the change in pitch that a person uses the way they make their voice rise and fall that tells us a lot about their intention and what they say in that are they being sarcastic about my jacket do they really love it um are they just saying it because they should? So we can interpret a lot of uh, we can interpret a lot from intonation, and we will see that if we visualize speech waves and what what we call spectrograms. That's where we look over time. What is the mixture of notes? It would be the analogy in music. So what's the mixture of notes that somebody has used in their speech? We can see some of that, but the trick is to figure out how to teach a machine how to see that. And the individual variances, uh, of course, within that. 
We we learn from very young um, different ways to express ourselves, and as we get older, that becomes more personalised, you know. And then we might follow particular fashions. You know, young people watch a lot of YouTube. You'll find American traits coming into young people that their parents just don't recognise. So there, there's there's a huge variation in that, and even people day to day can change how they speak. You know, famously, Madonna got a London accent when she moved to the UK. And those variations can make it very difficult for the sort of pattern matching that we try and teach machines. And when when you uh, part of your background actually is um, looking at hearing technology, what kind of overlap have you found in signal processing? Um, so for natural language processing versus looking at something maybe more generalized in a hearing aid, where you want everything to to become more accessible. Well, I think actually some of the different requirements are what struck struck me most. Um, a lot of the time when we're trying to record speech for applications, um, as engineers, we focus in on something called SNR or signal to noise ratio. So it's how much good signal, the ratio of how much good signal we have to how much bad signal we have. And as long as we make that bigger, everything's okay for normal hearing listeners. But if you improve that for somebody with a hearing impairment, sometimes it actually makes it worse because different sounds need to be enhanced differently for um, somebody with a hearing impairment. So the ways in which we have to enhance speech for a hearing impairment is very, very different. And it will sound totally unintelligible to somebody with normal hearing. So working with that sort of um, speech is actually very challenging because if you don't have a hearing loss you can't listen to it after you've processed it and tell whether it's any better. So it's kind of like putting on somebody else's glasses. Exactly, exactly. That's a really good analogy. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. I'm meeting here now with Nick Campbell, who's the an adjunct professor of computer science and founding co-principal investigator of the ADAPT Centre in Trinity College. And Nick's work has been um, focused around, I guess, making robots more believable, I guess, making sort of software feel more human and kind of delving into that wonderful space we call the uncanny valley, um, if you will. So... Just to explore the area um, on a sort of a grand level to start with, how important is it that people recognize themselves when they interact with a machine? You know, do, does, do people prefer sort of the, the humanized voice or does it matter whether they get something back that's very anodyne? Okay, I don't think it matters what kind of voice they get. They're used to hearing all kinds of people talking. They're used to hearing all kinds of machines talking. What I'm concerned about is that the machine knows what they're thinking. We use eyes to do speech synthesis. I pioneered a concatenative speech synthesizer way back in the 90s, I think it was. AT&T, the telephone company, actually uses that system for their voice. And that's a beautiful female voice. Really sounds like a human talking. So we can do, do realistic synthesis if you want it. We can also do sort of Mickey Mouse voices, which people are just as happy with. The, the trick, the magic that we use is that our talking machine knows if somebody is listening. You just blinked and nodded. <laughs> I know that you're listening, I know that you're following, that you're understanding, and I can continue talking. That's, that's how our system works. 
So it's, it's picking up those visual cues that, um, that we're not aware that, that we're giving off. But uh, I imagine the back end on, on making things uh, recognizable is much more complicated. We, we, we ran an experiment back in 2011. We had a little plastic robot in the science gallery called Hermie. <laughs> Hermie was very cute. It had two parts. It had a, a camera, which was on a neck, and it had an image processing system. It, it recognized faces. So if anybody walked into the area, it would put that face in the middle of its screen. And there was a screen behind it so people could see that it was watching them. And then it would start a conversation. It would say, hello, hi. <laughs> hello. Nobody answered the first one. When it said hello the second time, everybody said hi. So it was programmed to say hi back. So it's establishing that level of comfort, really. For, at first it's alien, and then once the, the tone has been set, if you will, people are much more open. Yeah. It's engagement that we is, is a term we use for that. Um, if you've got two people standing in front of you and you're a machine, you have to know if they're talking to each other or they're talking to you. That's the first. Machines have to be very careful when they speak. Um, typically, our machines have some information to deliver. We, we deliver content. Adapt does a lot of processing of, of very complex digital information. Our job in the delivery and interaction section is to package that information in a way that people can easily receive it. So we can do text processing. We can generate what we need to say. But we also know how people work. We, we, I have a background in uh, experimental psychology. We know that uh, people don't like doing business all the time. People love to chat. People come up and they'll joke about the weather or they'll talk about you know, all kinds of things. Um, so our machines break up the content and deliver it in uh, a chatty way, if you like. Uh, and one of the interesting things I've come across in your, in your work is the idea of making robots more sociable or at, at least appear to be more sociable. Um, what kind of behaviours are the real triggers that people recognise? <laughs> Laughter. Absolutely. Uh, people laugh. They laugh. Uh, if you tell a joke, they laugh. But that's, that's probably about 1% of the, of the occurrence of laughter in natural speech. Most people laugh when they're embarrassed, when they're getting to know each other, when they're not quite sure what's going on. They also laugh when they are sure what's going on. If, if you've come to the end of a topic and it's time for topic change, people in the group will naturally break out into some kind of laughter. There are different kinds of laughter, and we can process those different kinds and recognize which is which. We can also make people laugh, which is very important. And uh, when you're talking about making people laugh, um, how do you do that? I imagine a robot can't, <laughs> can't crack a joke. Is it that pregnant pause? Robots can crack jokes. <laughs> um, People are, people are built with a set of expectations. Since, since even before they were born, when they were in their mother's womb, they could, they could feel her blood. They, could, they were breathing her blood, if you like. And if she was happy, they could hear that noise coming down through the inside of her body, actually. So I think it's maybe certainly three months, four months, maybe even five months before we were born, we're hearing and we're processing the adrenaline in the, in the blood and we're, we're associating sounds and, and feelings. Um, when kids go to school, they learn to make friends and they learn to joke and laugh and play together. We are incredibly sociable beings and those, those patterns of behavior are wired into us. So if a robot triggers or a device triggers that kind of response, we are very happy to respond in that way. 
Uh, one of the main things that we're interested uh, in this show is the rise of digital personal assistants like the series, like the Alexas, mm-hmm. like uh, to a lesser extent Google Assistant because it has a little less personality to it. Um, what lessons do you find from robotics are, are feeding back in? Do you think if people can sort of uh, uh, take on board that mimicry element that these things will be used more? Yeah. You know, the best robot I ever saw for that, for talking with people and engaging people, was a little, it was about the size of an iPad, and it was just two eyes. Black screen, two red eyes, and they would blink and they would move. And the screen was actually on three motors, so it could turn and face you, it could look around the room, and it would blink when it saw you. And it would wink at you. <laughs> that level of, of abstraction, cartoon abstraction, works incredibly well. Disney knew this years ago. The, the photorealism, the, the, the humanoid robots look great, but when you sit and talk to them, they are horrible. Um, I don't think they work at all. This is a matter of opinion, but I'm much more happy with a, a piece of plastic or an abstract, a pair of eyes on the screen somewhere. Well, there is a, a school of thought in uh, cartooning uh, when it comes to designing characters that if you have a very detailed character, people will look for that character's internal life. Whereas if you look at something like The Simpsons, where the um, characters are very, very basic, people tend to project themselves onto it. Do you think it's a similar effect? I think you're absolutely right, yeah. So, um, again, when looking at how people interact with, with robots, uh, I guess you can, you can almost say Alexa is a robot because it's a, it's a physical thing, even though it's not doing anything. Um, do, you know, do, do you find that these patterns are going to carry over? Alexa, I find incredibly frightening, you know. <laughs> uh, you used to have one for $150, and you put it in your kitchen. Um, now they sell them in six packs for $50 each and you have one in the bathroom, one in the garage, one in the bedroom <laughs> wherever you go she's listening to you and everything you say is being streamed up to some server somewhere And there's an ethical issue there there's a problem with um, machines listening in on humans and as a, a front end of the ADAPT system I take responsibility for uh, ethical control we interact with people but we don't listen to what they say <laughs> you can actually get a very very long way processing nonverbal or paralinguistic information if you know that some for example if I say what's your name and you speak you're either going to be doing one or two things you're going to be saying huh I didn't hear you or you're going to be saying John or whatever you're going to be telling me your name I don't have to listen to your name I just have to pass it on to whoever needs it so without doing any processing of what you say if I ask you a more complicated um, you know, do you know what day of week it is? Then from the way your face moves, from the way your body moves, I can guess whether you're giving me the information or whether you're asking me to do something different, like ask the question again. So we have a very sophisticated bunch of processors on the delivery end, watching the person, passing on their responses back to the system where it can be ethically and cleanly processed. So I think... In a way, this is groundbreaking research that we can do speech conversation without listening to the other person. <laughs> Your wife does it all the time. <laughs> Mine does anyway. So, uh, we uh, are we on the cusp then of sort of personal assistants becoming almost surveillance systems in the house, where you will have devices handing over to each other as as you move through a building. When you use Gmail, you click the button to say I agree. You can use all my information. And Gmail does use all your information. I was in Temple Bar the other day and I stood watching the musicians. I was standing there for about half an hour. And the next day I got, how do you like the Keys restaurant? On my Google Maps. 
Huh? <laughs> if you go there and stand still for a while, machines know everything you're doing. Now it's up to us to make sure that society is strong enough to cope with that. So uh, we may very well be waking up in the morning and you know, Google will say, did you have a good time yesterday? <laughs> that was happening yesterday. Yeah, that's, that's the present. We have to design a future where that kind of information is uh, ethically controlled, shall we say? And our responsibility in making machines that actually are at the cutting edge, interacting with the humans, where we watch humans, and we do a lot of watching and listening, we do a lot of listening, we make every effort to process very low-level information. Just, did you head movement? Not what your face looks like, but whether your eyes blinked or not, and when they blinked. We can make so much information from, we can gain so much information from this timing. We know what's going on. We ask a question or we give some information. You, as a human, you respond. And based on the nature of that response, we know what to do next. So if you were to construct a personal assistant today, um, what features would you like to have in there that we can't do at the moment? What, what are you looking at? Oh, we are constructing dialogue machines. We have Caramella, we have Adele, we have Hermie. These are uh, robots or devices which are teaching people that could be used in call centers, for example. The crucial element of that for me, and I'm a synthesis person, I make machines talk, is to have a good eye. Uh, we also listen to the noise they make, not necessarily what they're saying, but um, we really need a better understanding of the context of the environment, what's going on and why. Uh, in our case for ADAPT, we deliver information, digital content, personalized, um, localized in your language, the way you want to receive it. Um, if we knew more about you in an ethically clean way, we could deliver that in a more effective way. It's like selling advertising. Um, I suppose you have to sign into it or buy into it. Um, the, the marketing side is another story, which thankfully as a scientist I'm not concerned with. But um, What would we like that we haven't got now? It's not faster machines. Machines are fast enough. I think really the answer is what Google and Apple and Amazon have already and that's tons of data. Uh, people who own Skype, they know everything I ever say to my wife. <laughs> we <laughs> Skype each other all the time. She's living off somewhere else. Um, Google knows everything I do. My, my phone tells it where I am. My email tells it what I'm thinking. Uh, all my searches tell it. They have so much information. Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, you know, the, the big five, seven, eBay, Yahoo, etc. They have the information that we need. And as an academic working in a university, I find it very, very hard to get that much or that quality of information. So that's what I'd love. <laughs> this is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. I'm meeting now with Professor John D. Kelleher uh, from DIT and the Adapt Centre. And he's a very busy man, so I've managed to track him down to a cafe in the middle of town. So if you hear any sort of background noise, you know, it's, it's the sound of busy people at work. So, John, uh, let's just jump into it. I mean, so far we've talked about digital personal assistance and the inputs. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the outputs. And you're kind of more interested in what happens in between. Sure, sure. So, um interested in trying to map from the inputs when we figured out what someone's told us or asked us 
um, and that can be a difficult thing to do. At, um, finding out how we should set up the output system to respond um, in terms of content, in terms of keeping track of where we are in the dialogues or the interactions. So are we at a greeting? Are we at the end of the dialogue? Or are we still in the middle where we're agreeing things? Um, and also triggering out as a set of things, uh, figuring out a set of things such as um, whether it's our turn to jump into the dialogue. So whose turn is it to go next and when is it appropriate to do that? Um, or uh, how should we back channel to somebody who's speaking? So what I mean by that is if uh, you've told me something, I've gotten some input, well, I have a choice. I can either... Um, give you a nod, you know, in dialogue we often say yes or no or nod and that's to allow my partner in the dialogue to say yes I've agreed with what you've said um, I've taken it that we've both agreed it and we can move on, so please continue talking, or should I uh, ask or launch a clarification dialogue to say okay no I, uh, I didn't get that can you please clarify in some ways um, there's also aspects of that where I might ask you a question and you've responded, and you haven't. This happens very frequently in human dialogue, where you don't answer the question I have asked directly, but I have to figure out through an implication of what you've said and the context the, what you meant in your answer. So I hope that helps. So when uh, we're looking at sort of the structure of conversations and the interpretation of conversations, um, I think the, the great example that we're used to in popular culture at the moment is IBM's Watson, which is very much an interrogative model. You know, it's, we're used to just getting simple questions and answers. So recognizing the structure of what a conversation is must be quite a challenge. So from an AI perspective um, and a machine learning perspective, I guess, how good is the technology at sort of learning, say, how you speak, how I speak, um, recognizing when we're being sarcastic or when an upward inflection isn't necessary an upward inflection, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so that's a big question. Uh, so we have the, the systems where we have speech recognition, and that's getting better. Um, one of the moves there, and I'm sure you've talked about this earlier with my colleagues, um, would be the fact to be able to go to general coverage of speakers from individual speakers. Or, um, but once we've got that message in, as you're saying, interpreting what's meant by a particular utterance or a particular surface form, as you're saying, there's sarcasm, um, there's idiomatic language rather than compositional language. These are all real challenges. They're all open questions. Um, there's progress being made on them, but there's also a problem of that while we might be able to solve those problems at the moment in a particular context or micro world, to solve them generally is very difficult. There's and when we're looking at particular micro worlds, are, are we really drilling down to the level of the individual user on this? Is this really where personalization kicks in or are we looking at sort of, okay, Irish people do this? Culture's huge um, and that would be a big nut to crack. Um, so that's a real challenge. Absolutely. There's big differences between an, an Irish person's behavior. And if, certainly if you go to somewhere like Japan, for example, even if you get take away from the language surface forms, understanding behaviors and dialogues are a real challenge there. But ideally, we want, that's where we're trying to get to, to personalize down to the individual level, taking culture into account, but also our previous interactions with somebody, um, what we've learned from those. Um, not just in the short term of what we've their interactions with us in the last few utterances of the dialogue or since this dialogue's begun, but when we spoke to them 
last week. So when we, in our lives, you know, we have people that we have very long relationships with over years, our parents, our siblings, um, uh, our friends, our partners. And with those people, it's not that we start a new dialogue fresh with them each point. For each of those people, we have different profiles and interactions. We don't behave the same way to each of those. Uh, we, um, we don't treat them all the same. We don't assume the same background knowledge between them. And because of all those differences and personalized histories, we have completely different interactions between them, and we understand what they say to us in different ways. So if one person in my uh, personal life says something to me and another person says the same thing, I can interpret that quite differently because of our different shared histories. And uh, I guess that sort of um, extends towards people who are coming from different cultures, say somebody, foreign that you're meeting for the first time. Sure. Absolutely, because... If I'm meeting them for the first time, I have no shared history. Um, so then I have to revert back to our Irish shared history or the Irish culture. But this person doesn't even have, we don't even have that in common. So that can make conversation very difficult. Uh, and everybody, I'm sure, has experienced that where they've met somebody from a different culture for the first time. So um, misunderstandings arise. Um, one of the things that helps there, though, is that those dialogues are generally quite general. Um, where you nearly have a script for, you know, if somebody comes to Dublin, I'm able to... if somebody comes to Dublin from London for the first time, or from the States for the first time, or from Spain or Italy, or even beyond that to you know Africa, Asia, I'll generally try to talk to them about the same things. I'll have that conversational script, because I know that those general topics are something that a tourist... I might put them into a tourist category, and then use a profile of a tourist to talk to them as regards where they've been, how long will they stay, how are they finding the weather, um, and stay on that level. I certainly wouldn't be sarcastic with them or I try to avoid using idiomatic language because that's so specific. Obviously, even in the English-speaking world, um, there's large differences in idiomatic terms between what we understand when we use an idiom in Ireland versus what is or isn't an idiom in America, New York, or Ohio. Um, So we try to use more literal language, less... uh, irony, less sarcasm, and stay on more general topics that don't assume uh, a background knowledge that the other person's unlikely to have. So once we've sort of established the general rules of conversation, either within cultures or without, or recognizing different cultures within a a specific conversation, uh, we go to the knowledge base. We go to, okay, what should a digital personal assistant actually know? So what sort of resources are we looking at in this area? So a lot of times for current personal assistants, if you look across the, you know, Siri or Cortana, so all of the major players like Google have their personal assistants, like Facebook have M, um, Siri from Apple. Uh, a lot of them are on Amazon Alexa on the Echo. All of these systems generally target very specific micro-worlds. They come back to the people recognize that the problem of interaction Dialogue, and particularly if we're talking about conversational personal assistance, is so complex that the way they solve it is by targeting specific uh, contexts or tasks. So it's, um, and the reason why that's useful is because if you know that, okay, I'm building a system that is going to give root directions. I can hard code a lot of implications into the, represent, the knowledge representation used by the system to understand or to map onto the meaning of what the utterance that has come in and the crest that has come in. It helps me to interpret that. Um, 
So I'm not sure. Let me. Check. I want to double check. Am I answering that question for you in terms of that? I. It's the focused context is the really important thing that allows us to hand engineer a lot of the representations, and that's where we're, we're currently trying to break out of to try and figure out how can we have a more general solution um, that can go across multiple domains. That's one of the challenges in research. And then the other challenges in research is maybe, okay, within a narrow context, how can I deep dive to give this person a more personalized um, service within this more narrow context? Service. I think the learning component there is very interesting because um, you know, it's, it's all a lot of fun to ask Siri to open the pod bay doors when we, when we meet her for the first time. Uh, however, you know, she has to get smarter. Um, so what sort of mechanisms are we looking at? I mean, are we basically looking at personal assistance referencing Wikipedia for everything? So, yeah, when we talk about learning, that's a, that's a really big challenge. Um, so there's a thing, uh, there's one aspect is trying to learn about the individual that Siri or the agent is interacting with. Um, a lot of the times... To really learn about an individual over a longer period, to try and for a Siri or a personal agent to build up the ability to have a personal profile of you, as you might have of a profile of your mother, so that you can interact with your mother in a very idiosyncratic, personalized way between the two of you. That's different to how you interact with everybody else. We're not, we're deaf, we're not there yet. Um, where we're at is where uh, we, because we have to learn just in, within the, an individual context within at the start of a particular dialogue uh, there's, there's challenges like an afro pronoun resolution you know um, trying to handle those problems is where we're still at uh, we are beginning to look beyond dialogue so that we don't start fresh each time to try and learn patterns of a user's behavior that can inform this interaction. But a lot of those are um, pre-designed or pre-identified over time. Um, a real challenge in uh, a lot of, all of these interactions are time-based, time series over protracted time. And a real challenge from an AI perspective is when we have a particular input or utterance or a particular interaction happening at, this, at a particular point in time, what is the scope of the context that we need to look at for uh, to understand that interaction and to behave appropriately? Is it the last few turns of a dialogue, the last few utterances, the last two or three sentences? Or do I need to refer back to part of a dialogue we had a week previously um, that we're picking up on something that we talked about before? Um, that often happens in human dialogue, particularly if we know somebody very well. We might, in the middle of a dialogue, say, oh, he's uh, really annoying me again. And that might pick up on somebody I was talking to about two days ago. Um, so that challenge between do we focus locally or do we longer term? Do we have a longer term dependency? Trying to get the relevance and to find the relevant context for understanding something is a, a real challenge in AI. And that, that represents sort of a massive data storage issue as well. I mean, where, when you're developing schemas to cover individual people and to recognize, okay, I'm talking to John right now, these are the things that we've talked to recently. Um, what sort of work is being done on that? I mean, are we looking at, okay, not only do we have to compress the sort of voice data we've gathered, we also have to make sense of it. Are we going to see everything managed in the cloud or are we going to see more things managed locally? Yeah, so... Um that's a big question. I, I, I think you will... So in two ways, there's two ways of going about it. Absolutely. If we want to store all the... Um, 
all the voice data. I'm not sure we'll want to do that long term, but even if we want to store all the data, that might have to go up to the cloud. Um, but there is a thing, If we, I think an interesting point here is about privacy. Uh, and I, do I want my personal assistant to store everything that I've engaged with and talked to them about on a server in a country outside of Ireland or Europe with different privacy laws? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of, that's coming to there's been some recent stuff on machine the machine learning space on federated learning from Google which I think is uh, a little bit tangential but also very relevant to this so if you think about if you're inputting text into a mobile phone and you might be using swipe or predictive text so and when I type th it's going to predict for me the word there if I'm, if I'm speaking in English. So that's a language model, that it's predicting either the next letter in a word or the next word that's likely to be said, okay, given the context. Now, one area where uh, so Google and those are very interested in making efficient text entry systems. Um, now, they make general text entry systems based on large background corpora of English, and they've learned, they learn there, and using machine learning context, there, how to predict the next word based on probability sequences. Um, what they'd like to do, though, is that when you use, if you're using an Android phone with a Google language model, and I'm using an Android phone with a Google language model, and we turn them on uh, the same day, they'll both have the same language model. But your language is slightly different to mine. So they would like to be able to improve the language models to make them more personalized and uh, also to capture how people are really using the language. It's, we'll have a lot of commonality for both from Ireland and Dublin in the language we use. So they'd like to cap- make the models better in the commonality across that. One way they could do that is every time we input text that goes up onto a server that's added to their training corpus and they retrain their model with these extended utterances, which means they're getting closer and closer to real human text rather than maybe some Charles Dickens corpus taken off the text in the background. The problem there, though, is from a privacy perspective, the data, all your input and all my input, is going up onto the cloud. Um, and then they have this massive corpus up there. So one way of trying to uh, help with that uh, is what they do now is they'll, uh, they'll, you'll have your language model, your phone will do a little bit of training on the language model using just your data locally. And then what they send up to the cloud isn't your inputs and your text, but the differences between the original language model that they trained, computational model, and the one that they've trained with the extra text. So they send the difference in the model rather than the training data or your inputs up. And then that goes to their servers and they merge those on their... um, they merge those on across a number of people's differences together to update their language model. The idea there is that your privacy is protected through an aggregation process. Now, there may still be, there's, may still be ethical questions about that, but in the background you can see how people are trying to come up with solutions for what goes up onto the cloud mm. and still protect privacy. Um, and the cloud gives you uh, the ability to storage large amounts of data which can go back to the question of if we have a large amount of data, we can look back into a longer context. Um, but if we put that up, what are the privacy issues around that? There's also the problem that if you put everything up there, we have to have some filtering mechanism because the solution to a longer context isn't to remember everything. You can see that in humans. Humans, we forget, and there's good reasons for us forgetting. You know. uh, we seem to have a very good way of... Um, Figuring out what's salient and relevant and being able to go into uh, or retrieve just the bits we need. Well, 
we don't all always do it we sometimes need to be reminded but uh, yeah I don't think the solution is to store everything but the solution is to figure out what's relevant to remember and try and remember that whether that's re- if we do that really well and we don't have to remember that much we might be able to do it locally if we have to remember lots of things then maybe the cloud's the solution but we need to think more broadly about the ethical implications around that in terms of privacy. It's almost like the iPod sync model really, isn't it? Sort of the content changes so it has to filter back down into the individual device. Yeah, yeah, in many ways like the long goes. So the trying to stay up to date with the current context and respecting people's differences and uh, and their privacies is a challenge we're all facing. So uh, that's that's where I see people. It, there's a term in machine learning called federated learning, and that seems to be where things are moving at the moment. Um, I, guess, I guess sort of one, one final point is how to deal with novelty. Um, I mean, novelty comes out of nowhere. I, if we look at the current fad for fidget spinners, you know, yeah. you, you can't sort of predict what will catch on with people. Yeah. So, so how quickly or how does, um, how can digital personal assistants sort of adapt to things that appear in the zeitgeist very quickly, blow up, and then maybe by, by the time sort of regular machine learning is caught up, its time has already passed? Sure, yeah. Novelty is a really interesting problem, uh, particularly in large volume data streams. We're doing some work in that up in DIT at the moment. Um, because there's a real, as you say, there's a real challenge. The, uh, the real trick with novelty is that there's a, there's a short time where that novel information has high value. And if you delay too long, waiting for more information to see if this novel information is interesting, the value is gone. So the longer you take to react to the novelty, the more difficult it is. Um, As regards novelty for um, personal assistance, one of the challenges there is, one is to identify novelty, but the other is to identify um, or to understand how the user would like to react to that novelty. Lots of novel things happen in different... If you look across the board, there's novelty in uh, across domains at different times. But which of those novelties are relevant to this person? Um, and how should the agent use that? So it might be... I'm thinking about Donald Trump's tweet the other day. Is it confetti? Confifi. Confifi, yeah. So um, that, uh, that's obviously a novel word, you know. Uh, for some personal assistants... If my user uh, is interested in Donald Trump or interested in language, that's a novelty that should be uh, should be told, and it's it's novel not just because it's Donald Trump. These days, we're well used to Donald Trump tweeting, but it's novel because of a particular aspect of the tweet. Um, so, for some users, that's novelty, that's relevant. For other users, that is not novelty. No interest in politics, no interest in Donald Trump, but they've been turned off for a long time. So, recognizing whether something is novel against a global background is one aspect, and then recognizing whether that novelty is still relevant to my particular user that I'm the assistant for is the next challenge. But even after I've done that, I need to figure out when is the appropriate time to tell my to interject in my user's life to say now is the time that they'd be interested in uh, in telling them about Confifi if they're in the middle of a, a meeting or a, a podcast recording um, I don't particularly want to get a message from my personal assistant right now telling me about something Donald Trump said maybe when I'm on the bus home later today and I'm tired and just looking for the distraction that would be an appropriate time and the assistant has to not only figure out what's novel but also figure out when is it appropriate to tell me about that 
And that was Niall Kitson in conversation with Naomi Hart, Nick Campbell and John D. Kelleher. If you haven't already heard our interview with Vincent Wade on the Adele project itself, it's in last week's episode. And that is just the first of a few deep dive specials that we have for you in the coming months. We'll also be taking a look at the Internet of Things and the National Testbed Network, Pervasive Nation. That's it for our programme this week. But remember, you can get all the latest Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from our website at techcentral.ie as well as our weekly tech radio show here online and broadcast every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thanks so much for listening. Take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.